You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to Drinks with Tony, with my guest Bruce Ferber and his new book that's called I Buried Paul. We discuss campaigning for Howard Dean, our mutual hatred for influencers, how Paul's therapists help him shift from TV writing to novel writing, the prison dog adoption program, and so much more. And on August 27th at 2 p.m., see Bruce discuss his novel at Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles with three other authors. Go to DynastyTypewriter.com. Hi, I'm Bruce Ferber, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Bruce Ferber. He's the author of I Buried Paul. Bruce, how are you? I am doing great today. You? Good. I always say buried wrong. Is it buried or I buried Paul? I buried Paul. I don't know why. It's like How a do you strawberry? I strawberry yeah. Paul. So, I bury Paul. Yeah, I yeah. buried Paul. All right then. <laughs> <laughs> you you've taken all my concerns away. Okay, that's you've released me existentially. That is important. The most important thing. <laughs> How do you feel? Get uh, write a novel and taking a crack and going in. Well, this is my third. So um, yeah. It, it felt good uh, because, you know, I had done that nonfiction book that I talked to you about. Right, right. Uh, the, the way we work. But um, writing novels, I, that's really what I I love to do, as hard as it is. Uh, and you know it's hard. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's brutal. It's, a, it's one of the worst decisions anyone can make in their life. It, it absolutely is, certainly financially. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I always tell somebody, they, they say, well, you know, is there going to be a sequel and, you know, all this stuff to whatever book I write? I said, no, 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 I'm not smart enough to do that, you know, because <laughs> that would involve, you know, maybe making some money if I came up with a detective character that I could, you know, weave through every single book right. and write them a lot faster because I already had the character. But uh, but I don't do that. <laughs> you know, it's there and there's a beauty into realizing what we can do and what we can't do, because I wish I can do that. Right. I, but I know. But there's just something inside me that I don't know why I can't. I love reading those books. I love watching those films. And I know that there are people who can do it that are way better at me, that, that are way better at that. And I got my weird voice over here that doesn't quite fit that in some way. You know, I'm sure the same thing applies to me, but also I got another thing going on is that I have no interest in writing the same character over and over again, because that's what I did in television. When you work, mm. when you come from TV and you're writing episodes of a series, it's all in the same world. And one of the joys of writing novels the way we do is that you get to create a new world every time out. And that's that's fantastic. And that's the fun, the world building. And then, and, and if you're, especially working in TV, if you're working so hard on, because at the beginning, you're working very hard on world building, you're, you're pitching, you're trying to create this whole world. And then all of a sudden, does it kind of just go into, okay, now we want the same, but different, the same, but different. Well, I, you know, I mean, you create the world and then um, you have to come up with stories that make sense in that world. You know, yeah. and you can bend the world a little bit and you can do this and you can do that. But especially if you're on a show that's going on for multiple seasons and it's a hit and the audience is following this one lead character, that's what they want. That's what they want to see week in and week out. So, you know, when you're dealing with networks and stuff, you got to give the people what they want. And, you know, you're sort of a slave to that and you do what you do, what you have to do. But once you start writing novels, you can do whatever you want and, uh, you know, throw the dice, see what happens. How exciting. And you could put together a Beatles tribute band. Yeah, you could do that too. <laughs> well, I mean, talk, talk about inhabiting a world. Uh, this world is just, it's crazy. What, what I, the things that I've found in the whole Beatles tribute thing, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, part of the inspiration for making my character, having one of his jobs, you know, as a musician playing in a Beatles tribute band was that I saw one about, I don't know, 15 years ago. It's like a guy I went to high school with was like the John Lennon in a Beatles tribute band 
playing in a public park somewhere. And they were definitely, they were really good, but they were, you know, not the high-end Beatles tribute bands. And yeah. then in that 15 years, it has exploded. There are just thousands of people. The nature of this tribute stuff, you know, there, there's everything. There's Guns N' Roses tribute, there's everything. Yeah. But the nature of the Beatles stuff has gone, it, it, it's just gone haywire. Somebody, you know, I've done a couple of Beatles podcasts since mm -hmm. I wrote the book. Oh, I did one, I'm gonna do another one. But one of the host of that podcast, he is an expert on every every bit of Beatles minutia, you know, you've ever heard. It, it's it's almost like a Trekkie thing. What what yeah. we're talking about? It's that devoted. Um, and he throws out these names that he thinks I've heard of, and you know, <laughs> and, and I've never, you know, I don't know what he's talking about, right? So there is a guy named Ringer, not Ringo, Ringer, Ringer Star, who he doesn't impersonate Ringo Starr in the Beatles. He impersonates Ringo Starr today. <laughs> wow. So this, guy, this guy's got the, you know, the short crew cut and the beard, and he's just, you know, singing into a microphone, just like he's imitating Ringo Starr as he tours with his all-star band today. <laughs> yeah. That's mind blowing. You know, it, 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 when you talk about it, the, the one, the mytho the beauty of the Beatles is the mythology they've created. I mean, these people are gods. You could go to almost anywhere in the world and go, do you know the Beatles? And they'll be like, Paul, Ringo, George, you know, they're like, <clears throat> they're like deities. But at the same time, for, for these tribute bands and people to uh, the audience to, um, to be excited about these tribute bands. It's almost like when you meet your heroes, it's too much. But if you can just see someone that's kind, that's an impersonation of your hero and does a really good job, it gives you more comfort. Yeah. Yeah. That's a thought I, mean, I just I, had. Now tell me, tell me that's wrong. No, no, you're right. And, 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 I'll, and I'll tell you something. I mean, there's one of the, you know, I did a lot of research for this, obviously. And one of, one of the great Beatle books was written by a British guy, Craig Brown, and the book is called One, Two, Three, Four. And there's a section in that book um, where he talks about Beatles tribute bands. It's like a page or page and a half. And he talks about what they do for people. You know, the people go to see this and, you know, if they're far enough away and the lights are down and they're wearing the outfits and they sound just like the Beatles, they can close their eyes and be transported you know, to a time that made them feel good or a time they were too young to experience, you know, when it happened. Um, and, you know, so he describes like the positive aspect of that. Yeah. But, um, you know, there, there are some funny stories that, that go along with it because that's assuming the lights are down low and you can't really see who the guys really are. Um, apparently one of the better Beatles tribute bands, one of the, the more famous ones called the Fab Four, made the mistake of doing a a video special in 4k okay where you, where you can see everything right the beatles won't even do it in 4ks <laughs> okay the living so, beatles and this was a story that i heard from um one of the podcast guys he said when they cut to a close-up of like john you can see that his sideburns are made from electrical tape <laughs> oh wow yeah. so, so talk about destroying the illusion i mean so you know talk it, about it, talk it, about technology ruining everything get back yeah. to that betamax man bring bring, there you, bring... <laughs> there you go there you go get the uh what 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 were the old uh tapes that we used to uh we used to shoot on s s video i can't remember from the 80s it was, was svhs oh right eight millimeter and high yeah. eight Remember high eight. High eight was the one. The high eight would have worked better than 4K in that scenario. And I had these little mini DV things because I went and shot a documentary way back when um, in one of the political. This was when Howard Dean was running for president. I got on a bus and followed all the Deaniacs and, and I had a couple of cameras and we had these mini, I don't know, you ever see these mini DV cassettes? They look like mini cassettes, only they were digital video. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mini DV. Like uh, they had them for the Canon, for the Canon uh, cameras and right, the, uh, right, the Sony. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I used to have, I, yeah. 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 Those were, those were great to shoot on in those days. And then you got the fire wire to put it into your. <laughs> right. 
You know, now the crazy thing is when you see most video being shot, it's being shot with what looks like a still camera. It is a still camera. Right. It, it, you know, because people shoot, they want to get those good lenses and get the highest, the best quality they can. So it's really a still camera that shoots video. Yeah. And, and that, that's what you see as opposed to the big Panavision stuff. I mean, I guess, I guess the big movies, well, they're shot digitally now. So I don't know. I mean, is Martin, Marty Scorsese huddled around a little, what looks like an old uh, single lens reflex camera? I don't know. It's got to be. It can't be. That. It's got to be. Yeah, yeah. If he is, if he is, his his voice is pitched up higher, like a little, like a little uh, Miles Diaz. Action! Cut! You, you kind of got to, you, you got to, you got to, uh, what do you call it? Mirror your uh, equipment uh, That's vocally. True. That's true. <laughs> the what you were on, you were on. I remember Howard. Uh, was it Howard Dean? Was it, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. That was the scream. That was the, that, that, the, that killed that because he, he was, that him. was still the primaries, right? He was trying to yeah, yeah, and he just went way down just based on that. Now, can you imagine the, the things that we've seen politicians do in yeah. that in the interim? And all this guy did was say yeah, and yeah. That was it. No, no, who who won the primaries that year? Because that was John Kerry. Oh, okay. So that sucked because we could have had we could have had a dean in the in office yeah. instead of what ended up being um, Bush. Let's go kill every 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 uh, everyone in Iraq. Right? Is that the? Yeah. Am I getting in the narrative right? <laughs> you're, getting the, you're getting the narrative right. I mean, I still think it would have been an uphill climb for Dean because he was he was the progressive candidate of his time, uh, and every time. We think a progressive candidate is making perfect sense. Uh, you know, I think Bernie Sanders makes perfect sense. Uh, the, yeah. He's been saying the same thing since he got into office, which is basically he has like two or three issues: economic injustice and health care. Those are the, those are the main yeah. two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why wouldn't why wouldn't everybody want economic justice and health care? Yeah, I don't <laughs> I don't want to die, and yeah. I don't want to be in poverty. Yeah. That, yeah, okay, I mean, I'm up. I'm up for that. I'm in that. I'm. I'm on. <laughs> yeah, but but America is not. <laughs> well, right. A lot of America is not. So it it's just it's a it's an upside down world. What can I tell you? Yeah. If if Bernie if Bernie was president and when right before COVID started, he would have been at that Wuhan lab going, "You're doing it wrong. Everybody, shut <laughs> this down." <laughs> I agree with you, and we wouldn't even know it, and we'd be and we'd be sitting at a cafe right now, and no one would even know what a what a pandemic is. There it is, there it is. You know, I keep thinking. You know, I was thinking about this this morning that I don't think any of us could imagine how public health could become such a political issue. You know, yeah. that, there was a while there where everybody, okay, now there's a pandemic, we'll all come together, and right. I, I don't know, Tony. <laughs> it's um, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes I think about it and I go, I wonder if people didn't have enough problems for a while. You know, where you, it's like if you don't have enough problems, you create problems around you. If um, we we got to steer it. I mean, because we have to have problems because we're puzzle solvers as humans, right? Yeah. We need to always be solving puzzles, and that's why that's why crossword puzzles still excite me to no end because it's like, oh, how do I how do I fix this? So right. I feel like we have to have something to fix. And if we don't steer into what we want to fix in life, it comes at us and we have to fix it anyway. So right. let's, that's why I love writing a novel because it's like, I'm steering into the struggle of making something, you know, 250 pages makes sense. That's, right. that's a huge struggle. That's that. And, and, and banging my head against the wall kind of makes me feel good. Like when I was a kid and I used to go surfing and I'd get out of the water, I wasn't good, but those waves, beating me down i'd walk out i'd just be like i'd have like a surfer high for the next day because yeah. i was in earth and nature and water and it's just well, like i was problem solving and it's just you know it's just like how do i get on this board and not you know not fall off okay now how do it's just there's a there's a beauty to being in struggle and when people don't have enough to struggle for then they find weird struggles whoa what i think the acid just kicked in hold on <laughs> <laughs> I forgot why I started that. It just went somewhere. <laughs> All from Bernie, Bernie Sanders. 
right 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 so we so i, I think we may maybe before the pandemic we didn't have enough problems going on collectively not 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 um in the western world maybe yeah. um where it's just like we we can all kind of go hey uh this, this you know let's all work together on this we haven't had we haven't we don't have experience working together yeah not for a long time yeah long. he's bad you're bad <laughs> you're racist <laughs> yeah let's redefine the term that's it it. i remember um this is this but like um there's been a couple times where i pronounced uh uh names wrong that are spanish and i was like oh okay and then i was like um and they would like kind of look at me like i was racist for that and i was like well here's my mom's name can you pronounce her name because she's norwegian and they're like and they couldn't pronounce it at all and i was like it's just different cultures man (laughs) I know. And it's like, and then we're so bombarded by trying to do the right thing. You know, I mean, you know, I'm the kind of person who, when I hear people going off about that's too politically correct, that's too politically correct. What a lot of these people don't include in that conversation is that part of being politically correct, it's not just being generically you know, saying the right thing. It's trying to be kind to people and trying to understand who they are. And so, I mean, I don't know why we're supposed to be talking about the book. And now here I am talking about Dave Chappelle. When Dave Chappelle went on his rant, um, the JK Rowling thing about how he supports TERFs and all, Mm -hmm. you know know about that? Yeah. What what does it stand for? Trans, trans something. It's like basically... Trans erotica, um, rough and forward. (laughs) But anyway, so J.K. Rowling, you know, came out against this and and Dave Chappelle supported it. And and he put it in his Netflix comedy special. Yeah, there was nothing funny about what he was doing. It it Uh, wasn't. It was like, I'm taking a stand against this because it's politically correct. Well, it's not hurting you. And what you just said hurts them. And what you just said isn't funny anyway. So why did you have to put that in your Netflix special? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm a huge fan of Chappelle, but I feel like that was his weakest special. Yeah, I, I don't know what. And, and you know, it's like somebody that famous with that much money, they feel like they have to double down on everything. And if Dave Chappelle said, you know what, that wasn't cool and, and moved on, <laughs> nobody's going to pay him any less money, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah. that's it, at that at that level of celebrity and that level of fame and how people look at you. It it, it trips me out because because we look at each other all the time. You know, it's like even just walking down the street as we look at strangers. Strangers look at us. Right. Um, I had eczema like on my eyeball last week. It really sucked. So so I was just like I was kind of aware that people were going like this, right. double taken. Like okay, there's something a little different. And it's just like oh, yeah, <laughs> working through it. But um not on my eyeball but on my eyelid but uh but it's just like we're constantly being looked at in certain ways no matter who we are but when you're a celebrity you're being gawked at and when you're at that high level of celebrity just the way not even what people want from you or what people don't want from you how they look at you just it's when everyone's eyes on you and only because they know your work it's gotta just blow the it's it the the mind of people i mean i don't know how these kids do it who get famous at 18 and 19 and all of a sudden all the eyes are on them and then of course Lindsay lohan goes off the hook and of course britney spears shaves her head in a uh a salon and it's just like people are like oh great let's now let's get the breakdown and it's just like no that's this the reason this is happening is because you're been throwing cameras at them for right you know have a little bit of empathy for these people you know yep how did you do it? How did you do it when everyone was looking at you and going, you're uh, just, gorgeous? You know, I said, yeah, you know, just look at me. Here I am. Enjoy it while you can, baby. That, that was that was my that was the way I looked at it. Yeah, yeah I'm all I got about 15 minutes and I'm done with this gorgeous mug. So just yeah, yeah. Take, take the photos while you can. The light is that's good. Right. No right. 4K. No 4K. That's, right. yeah, that's true. Especially now. Older you get you want blurrier stuff that's why all those you know those selfies now have these these filters on them for these women oh they, my god i hate them i hate them beyond belief no not the women the, the filters well some of the women 
<laughs> yeah, some of them are not good. Yeah, and, and the filters. Yeah, some of the filters are good. Some of the filters are better than the women. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, I, it's, I see my friends do this on social media, and I'm like, you know, my 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 lady friends, and and I see them as gorgeous people because their souls are gorgeous. And then they put the filters on, and I'm like, oh, it's not you. You're 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 like you are beautiful. And there, and and it's it's create. I think it's creating this obsession with oh, yeah. youth, yeah. and it's just like it's not that you're you're looking to your eyes. They're gorgeous. So you, it's embrace the beauty of who you are, you know. And and it's it pushing us away from that's going to just create a lot of mental health issues. I think, yeah, even more. I say uh, lock up every every Instagram influencer. Lock them up. <laughs> oh, that would be great <laughs> because they have nothing to say. They're influenced. yeah, but they, we could are yeah. Go ahead. Spawn of the Kardashian. That's that's who they are. They, we could they, yeah. <laughs> we could put them on the most beautiful, huge sound stages in tropical <laughs> islands, and they can Instagram to each other. So they so they don't have to lose it. They can still have it, but they can have it amongst themselves. Yeah, yeah. People with millions of followers and nothing to say. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I, I see a book there. there that is. would that would be that would, I, I don't know if I can inhabit that world because I'd be so that's a world I'm disgusted with. You know how hard it is. It's like because when especially when you're working on a book, you gotta you gotta love the world. I mean, there's no way you don't love the Beatles, I don't think. There's there's love for the Beatles when you're writing a book like this. Right, right. And my book, you know, this book is not all about the Beatles. This book is about art, it's about the creative process, it's about being trying to be a musician in 20. In, in the 2020s and how hard that is and you know it's a lot like working on a novel you know you just you're really you're scrambling you're scrambling i mean that this book was really based on all of the great musicians that i know who are the, you know they could be in a studio they could be recording albums they, they're that good and they, they're just scraping gig to gig because that's the world you know yeah so and you're are, you, <clears throat> go ahead you're, you, you're a musician as well I'm an amateur, amateur, you know, I played in garage bands, uh, you know, when the Beatles came out and, you know, everybody yeah. in my high school was in a garage band and I play a lot of different instruments uh, in a mediocre fashion and, but I love it. I, I love music and I, I go to see live music and, um, and I have a real sort of connection with, with musicians and artists of all kinds. So. Yeah, I don't I don't play an instrument. I, I mean, I can play a few chords that doesn't sound right. like that a cat is squealing and dying of hunger. But right. um, <clears throat> but the language of music and listening to music is it's been so it's so important to me ever since I was a little kid. Yeah. When I first heard um, Queen on the radio, when I first heard uh, Donna Summer, you know, <clears throat> and it's just like when, I, when I'm a kid just listening to uh her, her hits you know when i was listening to the top 40 and it's just like this is speaking to me on a level that nobody else is talking to me on it's... yeah there you go <clears throat> there you go wait what was uh what was do you remember one of the first musicians or songs where when you what as young as possible where you just kind of went oh what is that i think um <laughs> the one the thing that this was pre-Beatles was the Beach Boys, the harmonies, the Beach yeah. Boys Brian Wilson. That really got me. And um just it, it I I remember like being at there was a mall on Long Island, the Roosevelt Field Mall, which was the airstrip I think that Lindbergh took off from originally it became a shopping mall, of course. Um <laughs> and, and I remember hearing good vibrations on my transistor radio. And thinking, you know, even through that little speaker, this is the greatest song ever produced anywhere, anytime. And yeah. it still holds up to this day. And radio used to blow my mind because I had my first, you know, I went to Radio Shack and that was and the first thing that excited me when, you know, in the 70s and I was like eight years old or six years old was, oh, wait, I can get a transistor radio. And it's all I wanted. And I listened to it all the time. I tried to figure out exactly what radio station was where and knew all the, it was I went psycho on it. It was just like, where is this music coming from the air and into my and into this device? The technology. Yeah. And you grew up in San Francisco? Yeah, yeah. The area. 
Yeah. And so I was in New York listening to FM radio, late night radio. So FM was a big thing that that, you know, when I was growing up, it was that big transition from listening to music on an AM radio, all singles to listening to cutting edge albums, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, all, all those, the doors, all of this on FM radio where they'd play an eight minute track, which you yeah. never do on, on, you know, AM radio. So. And they would hit the deeper cuts too. You wouldn't have to listen to the hit. It would, it would be yeah. like, yeah, it's, <laughs> there was, there's, there was such, that was such a beautiful era because it was so important radio. I just remember yeah. just, it's, um, and I mean, that's why I still do this. It's this all started because I was in college radio and I was just, it's my you know first love. And then it's like, wait, I can do this. I don't have to drive an hour to a studio and do four hours of uh, punk rock and goth. Uh, I can just talk to writers, but that's way better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sink. So what 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 I constantly struggle with is like, you know, I like to read. So if I read, I'm not listening to podcasts. So there's so many podcasts. I don't I don't listen to a lot of them because it, it takes away from time that I do other stuff. You know. Yeah. I know there are great podcasts, including yours, and. But how many do you listen to a lot of podcasts? I really don't. I uh, that the time wise, I don't have it because I'm, I'm either writing or I'm going over uh, student work stuff or or I'm Netflix and chilling. You know, it's just like, you know, it's just like I want the I want to I want somebody to lullaby me with a big story and visuals and not listen to, you know, the podcast. But I think I don't know. I don't have to commute. And I, I've always made it uh, ever since the 90s. I made it very. I've, I've set up my life so I never have to commute because commuting good. is just awful. And I, I used to commute to work one hour, one way, one hour, the next, if I had podcasts in those days, they, they would be a godsend, but um, you know, that was, that was just talk radio and that was about it. Or, or if I was listening to a cassette or a CD, but um, yeah, I it's, I did listen to more podcasts when I had to commute to uh, UCLA one night a week to do uh, to teach. Uh, that's when I would listen. But so you still teach, but virtually? Is that it? Yeah, yeah, not on campus. Okay. They were going back and forth so much. On you're on campus again. No, wait, you're not. You're on again, and I'm just like, no, no. You know what? I'm just not. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> how about uh, how about let's just make this decision now. So there you go. I yeah. You. Yeah. yeah. And it and it's um, I, it's. I didn't think I would like it. And I fought against, I was always in person only in person only. Cause I want to be in that room with those 15 writers yeah, and yeah. banging it out and did COVID hit. And so I had, we had to switch really fast to online. Right. Then everything was online. And then I, and then I feel like, Oh wait, I can still get the same energy online. It's taken me a while to move that move. What I would try to bring in a room to online and now i'm like i just want to keep sinking into this because i've already worked so hard to get um adjusted to online you know yeah well good for you for being able to do it i you know my first experience with online video in in any kind of meaningful way i had a therapist who decided to move from la to new york so she said oh but we can skype now this was back oh. when skype was was big right yeah. So well, I don't know how I feel about that. And, but we, we tried it. And then, so we're Skyping, uh, you know, I'm in my session and I see like her, like shuffling papers or moving things around because she can, you know, she's there and she's at her desk and I was done. I, I said, this doesn't work for me. I can't do it anymore because you don't have to completely focus on me. And, you know, the way your brain works, you're a very organized person and you're thinking of, of different things besides me. And I'm not in the room with you. And it, it just, I don't know. And probably she learned how to not do that along the way. Right. Right. <laughs> but I, I felt it was so removed for me. And now I know so many therapists, everyone it's all online and they're, they're treating the great news about that is that they can treat people from all over the world. Yeah. Which is fantastic. You know? I'm in therapy every week online with uh, my therapist. Cause I'm not going to drive all the way to Agora Hills. She's like, do you want to do it online? Or do you want to drive deep in the Valley? And I'm like, online works for me. 
So. Wait, I don't, I don't, I don't live that far from Regura Hills. Maybe I can do your therapy for you. If oh yeah yeah, do you have a therapist in like East Hollywood, Los Feliz area? Then I can do your therapy for you. <laughs> I but this week would be like I was on this guy's podcast, drinks with Tony, and like we talked we talked about some we talked about Howard Dean, and I just brought up all this emotional memory of what could have happened, what could have happened. <laughs> you know, Tony, when you get a chance, and I know you don't have much time go on youtube and watch my little documentary it's oh it's yeah called, it's called pray for tucson okay and and why it's why it's called that is that i got on a bus in la and we went to tucson arizona with a bunch of dean uh dean campaigners from from la and they yeah. and we went to tucson so they could go door to door and get tucson to vote for dean in the in the primary yeah. And so I, I followed him for the weekend with cameras and stuff like that. And then, uh, so yeah, I made this little documentary. It's like 20 minutes long. It's oh, fun. cool. It's, it's all about the life of uh, a political campaign person, you know, somebody, a volunteer. It's such a strange, I mean, it, we go, you know, going back to like, I remember, uh, what was it, John Kerry? When he, it's like when he gets bumped up because Howard, <laughs> poor Howard D just did the scream. That's all he did. He could have went out there. He could have been. Uh, he could have been. Um, what you know, like like Trump. He could have just been like smacking women in the vagina. <laughs> no, no. Back then it was, it was just like a scream could get you out. And then now it's like if you smack a woman in, in the vagina, you get four years in the office. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> it's like that's what? It. What what bizarro world did we end up it in? It's really <laughs> nuts. It's really really nuts. But I remember, you know, I it's not not that I know a lot about politics because I grew up in that weird religion. We had to stay very. We politics was like demonism at the time, so I couldn't even yeah. follow it. But I remember when that happened, I went, "Oh crap, we're getting Bush." You know, if, I don't know. Yeah. If, I don't know if Bush had uh, was if it was his second term. Was that going to be a second term? I can't remember. Uh, believe so yeah and it's just like oh man no please no <laughs> you know it it's was, just like what well, is that it was the second term for sure yeah yeah and it's just like and here we are the collective the collective conscious of lunacy tony let me let up my dog for one second sure. and i'll be right back all right here we go come on come on baby the responsibilities of having a dog is important when you, when you, <laughs> I was, I was coming up with a PSA as you were doing that. Oh. <laughs> Let's talk about the responsibilities of having a dog. It's important. Even, <laughs> even. <laughs> what kind of dog? Even, you when have? You're, even when you're, oh, she's a, she is a mix of German Shepherd, Pitbull, and Rottweiler. So all the goodies wrapped into one. Oh, and what? How long have you had her? I've had her for. Let's see. She's five years now. Three and a half years. She's cool. a rescue. She's yeah. rehabilitated in prison, like a like a uh, pit bull and parolees thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got her from Lancaster Maximum Security Prison, mm -hmm. um, and she was trained by the prisoners. It was very cool. And when when she got delivered, to, you know, we went and met her, and then the rescue society came and delivered her to our house. And she came with all these letters from the prisoners who trained her, telling us what we could expect with the dog and, you know, what she was like. And sometimes she nibbled at your and you a little bit, but she didn't mean anything by it. And, and then huh. one of them wrote, you know, we are so glad that Lola is going to get to have a life, basically. Wow. These guys, they're in there forever. You know? Yeah. What so a beautiful evil. program that is. Now, are these like nonviolent or low violent offenders kind of things? Or? Max security, Tony. Really? Maximum security guys. So yeah. they're in there for the duration, but you know that obviously they're not going to pick somebody who's going to smack a dog around. Right. But so this is double therapy for them and the dogs. Right, you know? right. And it's and I bet those dogs get more attention because the, and and more earnesty. I mean, you wouldn't get handwritten letters from uh you know the, the, i mean you know it's the adoption agencies are great but when right. you have that much hands-on they're yeah. they're they're working with something that's going to go out into the world and be out there and that's, there's got to be so much importance to them for that yeah yeah sure i mean because they get to to be with dogs which are loving toward humans so right. 
the great thing for them. And, you know, the things they write are so sweet. I mean, it's just. Now, did you, so did you know who the prisoners were? Were you able to write them back? Like, do you keep up? Oh, you, I, you know what? I, I think I might have written, you know, like a thank you. There were so many of them. I, I, yeah. I don't think I wrote individually to all of them, but I did write a thank you. Yeah. Which yeah. Great. So, wow. And they're probably they, thinking about her now. Well, they got new dogs. They, you know, they got a new crowd. Oh, yeah. No, I know how that goes. I have ex-girlfriends and new girlfriends. And you just go, oh, who? What? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what ex-wife? What are you talking? Oh, that's right. That was that was that was my uh, delusional years. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Um the bit um, just I the going back to your novel and just building the world and how much fun is it to inhabit those characters? I mean, are, are, do, like, how do you start with character? Do you, do you sit there and go, do you enter it with, oh, this is what I love about this character? Or do you enter it with, oh, this is what irritates me and I'm going to put this character in that irritating situation? It's a really good question. And, you know, I just want to, while we're talking, um, when when are you airing this thing? Do you know? Uh, Wednesday. Wednesday. Okay. So August 27th, Mm -hmm. I'm doing an event at Dynasty Typewriter at the Hayworth Theater in Los Angeles. I saw that. What a cool venue. It, it, it's have you been to this venue? Yeah, I saw Adam Sandler there doing it when he was taping yeah. his okay. specials. So from Adam Sandler to Bruce Ferber. So Yeah, okay. exactly. So, so yeah, so I'm going to handle my celebrity the same way that Adam handles his, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh <laughs> so in answer to that question. But anyway, so I'm doing a thing. I wanted this. I've done two book events for I buried Paul already. Mm -hmm. For my third one, I wanted to do a multi-author thing where yeah. I could have three authors that I loved come on stage with me. And I'm the host slash moderator, and I'm talking to them about their books and yeah. asking questions kind of like the one you just asked me, like, how do you start? You know, what's your what's your process? This kind of thing. And we'll do a little reading, but we'll do a whole bunch of talking. Um, so the, the writers are um, Dan Sean, who's from Cleveland. He's a National Book Award nominee, fantastic fiction writer. Um, Tony Ann Johnson, who is from L.A., and uh, writes great novels and short stories and novellas. And Yuvi Zalko, who is from Portland, but also uh, got his MFA in Antioch. So it's going to be the four of us. And I'm going to be asking a question, questions kind of like the one you just asked, which how do you get started? How do you write yeah. the character? This kind of thing. So for me. So Diane, let's, let's, let's put a pin on it. Dynasty typewriter when? August 27th, Saturday, 2 p.m., matinee show, matinee idols, more okay. writers. <laughs> All right. It, it sounds great. And it, they come for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do they find out about that? Um, uh, DynastyTypewriter.com or BruceFerber.net. So that's me. Okay. And that's my website, BruceFerber.net. All right. And now, now, cool. Let's get into the juice of how you get in, how you get into your stories. Okay. So how do I get into my stories? So I had this idea. So the, the, I knew I wanted to write a book about a musician who was at a crossroads of his life. He's about to turn 50. He's living in a basement apartment. He's struggling gig to gig. And, you know, it's, I know that I want to write this character of, that's questioning, well, where am I? Well, you know, I'm going to be 50. And what do I have to show for myself? And what, what am I really after? And I knew that what this character really wanted was somewhere in his musical journey, he wanted to do his own material and make his own record and record his own stuff. But he hasn't been able to afford to do that because he's got to make money to pay the rent and going gig to gig. And then I certainly knew what it's like writing for other people's television shows, what it's <laughs> yeah. like to play in other people's bands, yeah. right? And always have to serve them and so that I want to write a character whose dream was to do his own stuff. And also, um, you know, through that, it, it just evolved. So, okay, so you have a character who hasn't realized his dream. So part of his dream is he wants to make his own record. And um, also through the course of the book, we learned that in traveling and playing one night stands and all this stuff, he had a daughter way back when who he's never met. He doesn't know this daughter. So as you're turning 50, 
and you start to examine your life, who is this little girl? I mean, she's 20 something years old now. Who did I create? Is she like me, you know, and is that bad or good? And so all these things start to come together. And then, you know, one of his jobs is he plays in this Beatle band. And so then you get into, okay, who are the other three guys? What are, yeah. what are their stories? And their stories are all different. One guy is, a, is an Indian guy who works for an aerospace company. He plays the George Harrison in the band. And another guy is an Italian guy. The guy who plays Ringo is Italian. And he works for his family's uh, porta potty business. He runs his family's porta potty that they've had for like 30 years on Long Island. So that's his day job. And, um, and the guy who plays the John Lennon, he is, uh, he's on Medicare and, and Social Security. And, and, but he's great. But he's yeah. great. So, um, so when, so when, the, when you're hitting these characters, when do you discover what their jobs are? Do you give them the job first or do you write, the, or do you write these characters around your protagonist? And then you go, oh my God, this guy does outhouses. Well, I wrote it around my protagonist and, and when, so I got to this thing, this point in the book where I wanted my protagonist to, in addition to all his music gigs, have to take some kind of day job. So, you know, I created this character that the Ringo in the band owns a company. He's not an aerospace engineer. He owns the kind of company that anybody could, could work at. So yeah, so my character uh, takes these jobs every now and then, working delivering porta potties and honey wagons to the set of a movie and things like this, and um, and he loves it because it's like he realized a long time ago that he could not be a musician and have a straight job that meant anything to him that was important. So, so he said, I was really lucky. I found a shit job. That's a really a shit job that would never, would never tempt me to do anything but music. So that's, that's how that all got created. I got to tell you my identification with that right now. What happened was, is I needed money and I started ghostwriting and it was the low level of ghostwriting. And it killed my soul exactly. because I got to give my voice to these people. And these people, these were like, they, they, it was all these people who were trying to become um, life coaches. Sure. And so they were like, Oh, uh, I need to be the next Tony Robbins. And then it turns out because they all hated what they did in life, but in their books, it was all about how great it is to be a real estate investor, but they hated it. And there was just, and so these, and I'm just like, I, I felt like, I felt like I was getting a sodomy from Satan. For just like for just for just doing words for these people who have like they're like oh yeah I read that book and it's just like it, they they when they say they read a book it means that it was on Audible while they were working out at the gym and they were watching a TV show at the same time <laughs> I'm just like you don't look at a page do you you've never seen a book page in your life have you anyway so I'm work I've worked I finally got out of those gigs and got into the black enough so I can save some but but it took me about six months of like decompressing from these um barnacles that were it, it, doing this doing the, like kind of too close to what i do right and then then i could start to get back on my own work again but i pro i i can never go straight again i will go trim your hedges i will go i'll do i'll do anything i'll do menial work and get less pay not me you know it's it's not menial work but just anything to anything that's not you know, unless it's a TV gig or whatever, then I'm in, but, but, but I, but I'll be in a room with other writers who have been through the sure. trenches. It's not these people coming in from, you know, uh, the ether going, Oh, books are easy. I just don't have time. And I'm like, uh, yeah, right. Anyway, <laughs> that's how, that's how your experience affected me. There you go. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad it affected you that way. Um, so well, yeah. What was it like when, so when you're working, so when you're working on TV shows, it's taking all of your time when you're working on that. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. You don't, do you, um, is, is that when you're kind of at sitting there on the side going, Oh man, I got this novel. I got a novel in me. I got another novel in me. I got to get these out. Was that nagging you as you're working on TV? 
no, because I never knew that I could write a novel. I mean, really? I, was so, I was so in that world. And then I had a bunch of life experiences happen to me that made me not want to be in that world anymore. Not, not necessarily in that business, but my first wife passed away. I had kids. I had to you know, deal with all this stuff. And I was not, I was not excited about going back to television, right? Mm-hmm. So this very same therapist before she went to Skype uh, was responsible for me writing novels. Uh, Bless her heart. Yeah. She said to me, the one line she said to me was, have you ever thought of writing a novel? And my response was, I can't write a novel. I can't do that. What are you talking about? And then one day I came up with this character and I said, I'm just going to write this character. I'm going to write three pages of this character in prose, which I haven't written since probably high school. And I'm going to see what this feels like. And I wrote it and I loved it. I love this character. And um, so it, I wrote this character who was, he was 55 years old <laughs> and he was at a point in his life where he had been a manager in the entertainment business and he had now been reduced to selling Mercedes. And this was based on somebody who I knew in the entertainment business who, you know, he was managing all these standups that I was, you know, trying to do pilots with. And then one day he calls me up, he says, oh, you're looking for a new Mercedes? I said, what? What are you, what are you <laughs> This is, this is what he was doing now and that struck me as really sad um so i i started out with this character who so his marriage was up his kids weren't talking to him uh he was selling cars and yeah. and and he said you know i am just this is i, I gotta do something in my life that i gotta change my life around i got i gotta do something to change my life around so I, I write three pages of this character, right? And then I kid you not, one day I go to my mailbox and I take out the penny saver. You know, the penny saver, it's just a, a throwaway with ads uh-huh. or, you know, things you can buy and, you know, and, and they used to have classified ads. So I, I take out the penny saver and on the cover of the penny saver is an ad for life-changing LASIK surgery, $250 an eye, uh-huh. Okay. So I decide that my character will have worn glasses his entire life. And in an effort to change his life around, he's going to start small. He's going to go for life-changing LASIK surgery, $250 an eye. So he goes and gets the, the, the LASIK surgery and it changes his life. It changes his life in the sense that not only does he see better, but he sees the world differently. Yeah. And suddenly his character starts to grow. And so just these two elements were exciting enough to me to, to begin writing this book. So that's and so that- much fun. My, my th- this is what my therapist says. She, and she drives me nuts and she pisses me off to no end when she says this stuff. Cause she's like, what are you writing about now? Because what you write about is essentially what you're going through. And most writers, I could tell like, uh, like what they're going through in life and what the, what the big question is. It's like the big question, like the, what is the question of the book? It's, we're always yeah. kind of presenting a question. It's like, what, what is blank or whatever? Um, and it's, it just, it, uh, it cracks me up because there's a, there's an L even though it's like not therapy, it's a little bit therapeutic. And when I look at what I'm working on, I'm like, oh, I was angry about that that day. <laughs> oh, I must have been angry about that. But I created a scene that was way over here and no one's going to know exactly what I was angry about. But I personally know what I'm irritated about. So I, I go, oh, I was having a rough day that day with blank, mm-hmm. blank and blank, you know. <laughs> so, but then it, it turns into it turns into scenes and it turns into yeah. yep. what we what we get, what we get out there. So, yeah, so I wrote two novels and then I wrote a third novel and I gave it to somebody to read. It, it, I was trying to do something really that was Every, every time I write something, I try to do something that's different, as I told you. So I was trying to write a novel that was from, it, it was about a woman and written first person. So I'm writing a woman first person, right? Yeah. Which many women would not be crazy about, it, especially today. And, you know, it, it had some good stuff in it, but I gave it to a female editor, freelance editor, and she just, she destroyed it. She just yeah. destroyed it to the to the point where, you know, I mean, it's like I can take it, you know, but it, 
I, I never had gotten notes that didn't give me a little bit of a, hey, why don't you do this? Or, or maybe mm-hmm. if you took it that way, because that's the kind of notes that I was used to in television. If a writer handed me a script and I was running a show, right, I would never just say this sucks. I would say, right. you know, why don't you try this? Or maybe, you know, maybe this is the key to what you're going for. So all it was, was just everything that was wrong with it. And it, it just sort of, I put it aside. I put it aside. I was, you know, I'd spent almost a year on it and I was just, you know, kind of destroyed and I didn't know what to do. And that's when I wrote, I edited the nonfiction book because I put that, you know, I put that aside, I put it in a drawer. And um, so after the nonfiction book, by that time, I, I had licked my wounds and was ready to start fresh. That old novel is still, still somewhere. Are you going to go back to it? You think? Um, I might, but during COVID, I actually wrote another one. So that's the one that I'm, this one I wrote before COVID spent a year trying to sell it, finally sold it. And then during COVID, I started something new. Cool. So so that's how close are you on that one? I've written four drafts of it. Uh, it's out for like early reads with friends of mine and everyone has a different comment on it. So it's like, oh God. And so, so where I'm at with that now is my head is like spinning because, uh, you know, once this event is over, um, then I'm going to start going back to it and deciding who I'm going to listen to, what I'm going to change. Right. Yes. Yeah. No, I did. A, I did an early, uh, I did an early out on the current novel that I'm rewriting just to a couple people who actually were early readers on Jesus jerk. And oh, it was good. just kind of like, is this a thing? Yeah. <laughs> Have I been beating my head against the wall for six months or is this a thing? And it, it came back where they're like, oh my God, this is, this is, this is crazy. There's problems, but it, this is good. And I'm like, okay, cool. It's a thing. All I needed to know is it's a thing. <laughs> I'll see you in about three months. <laughs> right. right. So. so, yeah, but when, let's say I've sent it out to, let's see, three people plus my research guy. And my research guy is so busy with his real job that he's only read part of it. And I don't know whether I'll ever hear from him again, but he's sort of an important part of the equation. Um, but so the other, so two, two people read it, the whole book. The other one has read half of it, but has given me notes. And the first two people were sort of in sync, but the third batch of notes is different. And the third batch of notes is a little more substantial. And I'm a little bit scratching my head. So I'm going to talk to that guy today and see, you know, see what he means. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. P- people don't understand how much of a process it is to write a book. That's yeah. people just read it, but that's great. They shouldn't know. They shouldn't know the hell we go through They're right. They're there to right. be entertained and think a little differently. Maybe. There you go. There you go. Bruce, thanks for coming on the show again. Tony, always. Um, so yeah, so I buried Paul, right? Uh, available at your local bookstore anywhere, um, and online and, uh, yeah, it's a fun read. (laughs) All right. Thanks. Not only are we going to New Hampshire, Tom Harkin, we're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. This is the greatest and best song in the world. Tribute. Long time ago, me and my brother Kyle here. We was hitchhiking down a long and a lonesome road. All of a sudden, there shined a shiny demon in the middle of the road. And he said, Play the best song in the world, or I'll eat your. 
Listening to 101.9 FM KPCRLP Santa Cruz. Bruce Ferber on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, I Buried Paul. Come back next week for episode number 205. Just another hour of chatting with some awesome authors. I'll see you then. I'm a cork on the-